Well, I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. We're going to begin to read from verse 18. Verse 18, it says, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And so he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did this fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you not only will do what was done to the fig tree, but also you will say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Well, they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? And if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they said to Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, no, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, and he went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? So they said to him the first, and Jesus responded to them, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him their fruit in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. 
But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we pray that your word would be established in our lives. Lord, that our hearts would be open. Father, that we would not be like the Pharisees and the self-religious, the self-righteous. Those who could see the change in the lives of others and not realize they needed that change in their life as well. God, I pray that the lessons of this section of Scripture would just become evident to us. Lord, that your Spirit would guide us and lead us in all truth. And Lord God, that you would be glorified in this place as we seek to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you remember, we saw Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he was doing battle as he comes into Jerusalem with a self-righteous religious society that was off track. They weren't really doing the things that God had asked them or laid out for them to do in his word. They had got, made it all about themselves. Made it all about what they could get or what they could receive. And so as, they, as Jesus comes, he enters into the temple and he, he looks around and he says, Now this is the temple of God, but he said, My house should be a house of prayer. So he threw out the money changers and the people that were selling sacrifices and the, and the guys who were ripping people off. And he went to Bethany afterwards and he, he spent the night there and he comes back. And on his way back into town, he does something that's pretty interesting. On his way back into town, he sees a fig tree full of leaves. Well, here's what we know about fig trees. Fig trees get their leaves and fruit at the same time. So when there are leaves on the tree, it's a promise that there's fruit. And Jesus, being hungry, walks over to the tree and he sees the leaves. There's no fruit on it. Well, listen, it helps us to kind of get a grasp of what's going on when we, when we look at the other accounts. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 13, in the parallel account of this thing, it says that Jesus said, seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. The fig tree comes to fruit twice a year. Once around Passover time and and once later on in the season. And the scripture says it wasn't time. It wasn't time for there to be figs. But the leaves were there. You see, a tree, a fig tree with leaves is a promise of fruitfulness without bearing any fruit. And as Jesus is coming back in and as he's going to be dealing with the question from the self-righteous or religionists, He's going to be dealing with a question about what authority do you have to do the things you do? To say the things you say. Ultimately, to put people out of the, of the temple. Because we were making money off of that. And they weren't very happy about them being removed. And as he comes to deal with this, it begins, the story begins, the concept begins with Jesus standing at a tree full of leaves, promising fruit, but no fruitfulness in it. You remember what he used to say to the scribes and Pharisees? He said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You're a grave, all pretty, 
all decorated and look all sweet. But you know what's in a grave? Dead men's bones. Jesus comes to that tree and he's that promise. The outside looks great. But there's no fruitfulness. And the challenge as we look at the scripture this morning is that very challenge for us. Are we a fig tree promising fruit? Look great on the outside, but inside are we like the Pharisees? Are we full of dead men's bones? Good answer. (laughs) That's what we're looking for. Hey, we don't want to be like that. Out of the mouth of babes, he has perfected praise. That's right. That's right. So as we look at this and as we look in this section, we want to see what is going on. Now, Scripture tells us that uh, Jesus, when he comes to the tree in verse 19, he said, So let no fruit grow on you ever again, and immediately the fig tree withered away. In the other gospel accounts, we see that, that right before their eyes, it dies from the roots up. So immediately there's this concept within the disciples that what just happened? But Jesus just spoke to this tree and it died right in front of us. It, it lost all its life. But the reality was the cursing of the fig tree. Guys, the tree was already cursed. It had leaves and no fruit. Jesus was just expressing the reality of what already existed within the tree. And there's, a, there's problems, there's issues that come up. Because in scripture, a fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel. But listen, not every parable talking about a fig tree is talking about the nation of Israel. We make ourselves feel good. We can say, yep, God cursed the nation of Israel. It doesn't really apply to us. I don't believe that's true. I think the Lord looked at the fruitfulness of that tree and said, man, should be, should be bearing forth fruit. If it's promising fruit, it should be there. There should be that fruitfulness. Well, the disciples ask him, and this is what the point of the parable is, of the story that we see Jesus, the illustration he gives. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? They asked the question to Jesus, man, what's going on? What's happening? How did it, how did this, it come to this? And Jesus gives them this answer. Listen, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it'll be done. For whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus gives them an answer. Now, now the answer doesn't really seem to me when I look at it. The answer didn't have a lot to do with Israel. Jesus doesn't say, well, Israel should have been more fruitful. No, he, he talks about faith and doubting and prayer. Why is he talking about those things? Because that's what he's getting at. You see, he just cleansed the temple and everybody there where they should have been praying were buying and selling and making money and ripping people off. And the people who were coming to worship were getting ticked. It was a bad experience. They come to worship and it was a bad experience because it was just a bunch of of people trying to, to rip one another off. So Jesus, I think in this illustration that he gives with the fig tree, he tells them a few things. Three things I see immediately out of it. The first is the presence of faith is essential. The first thing he said, right in that phrase, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith. But it's, it's not just that. It's not just that because 
The scripture would tell us in Mark eleven twenty two, it lays out for, so Jesus said to them, not just have faith, but have faith in God. You see, where your faith is placed matters. This is not faith in faith. Some people believe that that faith is this magic word, this magic ingredient. You have faith and you get everything you want. But you see, the scriptures are indicating that our faith is to be in God. We need to have, we must have that faith, that entrusting, that, that putting ourselves in. But the object of our faith is important. Is the object of our faith God Almighty? Is the object of our faith our own ability? Our ability to make ourselves fruitful. Our ability to provide for ourselves. Our ability to overcome whatever obstacles lie before us. Or is our faith in God? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, the Lord lays out for us how we can have confidence when we're in prayer that we're going to receive what we ask for. It says in verse 14 of 1 John 5, Now this is the confidence we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions we have asked of him. See, he qualifies the concept of coming to the Lord in prayer. That faith is essential, faith in God, and that we're praying according to his will. The greatest example of that to me in the life of Christ is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, was, he reached that, that, that place where, as an example for you and I, he says, so that we understand it, hey, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm here to do the will of the Father. Period. You see, it's, a, it's an attitude of submission. It's an attitude of, of consecration to the Father. Whatever path you have me walking, whatever experience I need to to have in my life, I'm going to trust you. I have my faith in you. And according to your will, let it be done. Whatever you ask in that place, it'll be done for you. We see it in the lives of the disciples as they go on. But then Jesus tells us there's a problem. First, we have the understanding that we have to have the presence of faith. But the problem he lays out is this problem of doubt. Look what he says. And do not doubt. Have faith in God. Do not doubt. Man, that's that's tough. It's hard. In in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord lays out a, a familiar scripture for you. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... By the way, that's if is in the first class condition in the Greek. It means since you lack wisdom, not that some of you are so wise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of a sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The phrase double-minded means two souls. A way we might say it today is he has ulterior motives. It's like that idea that, well, I've got my plans and I know what I'm going to do, but before I do it, I'm just going to go tell the Lord about it. That's a double-minded man. 
The Lord says when we come to Him, we don't want to come to Him doubting. We want to come to Him, Lord, provide for me that plan. Provide for me that plan. Get your eyes on God and not on the mountain you're trying to move. Because God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. God is able to do anything that we need Him to do. But we've got to get our eyes off the mountain and onto Him. We have to present ourselves to Him in, in an act of submission. Lord, I'm here for you. It's your will. Isn't that what Jesus... Listen, Jesus said, the things you see me do, you can do. But that means when you are walking like Jesus did. See, that means when I am in submission to the Father. When Jesus said these words, Hey, the things that I hear my Father speak, I speak. The things I see my Father do, these I do. This is what He lays out. This is what we want to come to to recognize and to realize. we got to be careful of doubt and double-mindedness. We need to have faith. But He lays out for us, That prayer is the key. Prayer is the key. Look what he says. He says in verse 22, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. He didn't just say whatever things you ask. He says whatever things you ask in prayer. You know, if it was just a matter of asking the Lord, it would have just said whatever things you ask. But this word in prayer, the, the root understanding of this word is to turn toward the kiss. It's, a, it's the same root word that we get the word worship from. To turn toward the Lord, to put our face toward Him, to seek Him. Whatever you ask in prayer with this attitude of worship, it's vital that we have that attitude of worship as we come to the Lord. As we seek the things that that we want Him to to work in our life, submitting ourselves to Him, trusting that He's going to do this perfect work in us. For He will do that perfect work. Whatever things you ask in prayer, that attitude of worship, believing, that's an attitude of trust. An attitude of worship and an attitude of trust, we will see the mountain move. That, that concept, moving mountains, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's an idiom for God doing the impossible, overcoming impossible odds. We read about it all the way through the scripture, the Lord doing things like this. But the keys, as we look, scripture unlocks for us the key of, of having that vital prayer life that we need. In John chapter 14, listen, the Lord lays out for us, beginning at verse 12. It says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater than these, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, listen to this, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will, I will do it. Ever since the, the word, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The church has responded by just putting Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. You guys have heard it, right? We pray a prayer and then we say in the name of Jesus. There, I, I prayed in his name. But whenever we see the word name used, it's singular in reference to God. It's talking about his character. It's talking about according to, to who God is and, and what God desires. And you see what Jesus said? I'll do it so that the Father's glorified. 
in the Son. We want to see God glorified. See, these are keys to our prayer life. These are keys to seeing God move mountains. To seeing God help us overcome those incredible challenges that are in our life. We want to see it happen. In Mark chapter 11, listen. In Mark chapter 11, the parallel account. This is what Peter would write. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now listen. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You see, the Lord ties that right into the same thing. Well, you hear people all the time talked about naming and claiming that, that if we name it, God's got to do it. By faith, we come to Him and He'll do it. But listen to the whole picture of what God's talking about. Having a life utterly submitted to Him. Wanting to see Him glorified and magnified, not ourselves or some other thing. And then He wants us to have that right relationship with Him. And what does He point to immediately? Forgiveness. He don't have to go much further than that, does He? He says, while you're standing there praying, as you're praying for me to move this mountain for you, is there someone you haven't forgiven? The Lord says, if there is, you need to forgive him. You need to forgive him. This last weekend, we had a, a marriage retreat and up in Boise. It was great. It was a blessing. God really moved in some mighty ways. And one of the things we talked about was this, this very topic, this idea of forgiveness. And we laid out three keys to, to being able to experience forgiveness in your life. So I'm going to share them with you. They're real easy. First key to being able to, to grant or experience forgiveness is to learn to sympathize. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Recognizing that I am capable of being just as guilty as the person I need to forgive. Recognizing also that that person has a story in his life. And if I could rewind the clock and I could go back to the, to the people, you guys know the phrase, right? Hurt people, hurt people. Have you heard that before? If you haven't, you have now. Hurt people, hurt people. That's what they do. And if we roll, black, roll back the clock and we look at what happened in their life, you're going to find a point in that person who did you wrong's life that something was done to them or some issue happened to them that you'll be able to sympathize and that's a key to finding the ability or the desire within your heart to forgive him. Jesus, he was moved by compassion, sympathy. The scripture lays out for us, if there is any comfort, sympathy. We lay aside, we find the ability to forgive. The second thing we want to do, not just sympathize, but relinquish relinquish that's where most of us struggle right there most of us might be able to sympathize but the idea of relinquishing is to give over that hurt give over the 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 feeling that you've been wrong that somebody's done something to you that they should have to pay and they shouldn't get away with it the bible says we need to relinquish that to the lord really 
Well, yeah, turn with me to 1 Peter. Just flip in your Bibles to the right. Keep flipping until you get to 1 Peter. When you get to 1 Peter chapter 2, stop. If you get to Revelation, go left. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Actually, let's go back to verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return, who when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Scripture tells us that Jesus is able because he committed himself to the hands of the Father. The way you're able to relinquish the hurt in your life is to give it over and put yourself in the hands of the Father. Whatever enters into my life passes through the hands of a God who loves me. So I'm going to relinquish it to him. The third part, we're going to sympathize, relinquish, and the third part is anticipate. What? Anticipate God's help. He said, if you cast your cares upon me because I care for you. God says, uh, you call on me, I will help you. I am near to you in a time of trouble. But we got to pray in faith, faith in God, not doubting, but trusting. Trusting that God will do what he said he will do. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, especially when we're dealing with the, the work of forgiveness, because listen, most of us are doubting when it comes to forgiveness. We doubt they're, they're worthy of the forgiveness we want to give. We doubt. But listen, while you're thinking about that, just pause for a minute. Nobody is. Nobody's what? Worthy of forgiveness. See, that's the problem with the Pharisees. They don't think they've done anything wrong. It's always sad to me when I'm talking to somebody about the Lord in, in town or, or over in Twin, and I'm, I'm sharing with them, saying something to them, and they, I hear this phrase over and over again, well, I'm a good person. I even heard one time, I'm a good person. God will be lucky to have me in heaven. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. You know where I was talking to that guy at? In jail. Oh, the delusional. I don't know. Man, everybody, everybody needs forgiveness. And I think this is a key to, to what Jesus is laying out for them here. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. But we've got to come to them right. With a right heart. Not with a tree full of leaves promising fruit, but it's all show on the outside and nothing real on the inside. You see the example he's given? It's got to be real. It's got to be real. Well, then in verse 23 of Matthew 21, it says, And when he came into the temple, the chief priests, they, they come to him while he's teaching, and they ask him two questions. Two questions. One, by what authority are you doing these things? And second, who gave this authority to you? That's a big deal in Jewish or Hebraic thought. This is why. A good rabbi believed it was not his responsibility to interpret scripture for you. That was God's job. 
So when he would come and explain scripture, he would always say, well, this is what rabbi so-and-so teaches, or this is what rabbi such-and-such says. But he would never tell you, this is what the scripture intends, or this is what the scripture means. Because he didn't feel he had authority to do so. There's only one place authority comes from. Maybe all of you guys have met at one time or another people who love authority. You ever run into somebody who loves authority? I, I run into them. I don't know why. I must have a sign on my forehead that says, if you think you have authority, tell me what I should do. Because we get an opportunity to hear then what they think I should do. Jackie, do you have any idea how bad monsters are for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but so is breathing and walking and riding motorcycle wasn't all that healthy for me neither, if you remember. Not wearing a helmet, that didn't work out so good. There's a lot of things like that, huh? They come to Jesus and they want to know what authority, by, by what authority have you done the things that you've done? So listen to Jesus' response to them. Jesus says to them, okay, let me ask you something. Now, this was common in a, in a debate, especially a Hebraic or, or Jewish thought. It was common to ask these kind of questions. So here's what he says. Listen, he says, I will ask you one thing, and if you tell me, I'll tell you what authority, by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it by heaven or by men? He's saying to them, you tell me what authority John the Baptist came in. You know, sometimes... I don't, I don't clearly grasp something until like the 50th time I read it. I don't know if there's anybody like that. I've been through the scripture a hundred times. You know what I realized this time going through it? Remember John the Baptist at the river and he's baptizing people and the Pharisees come to him and they ask him who he is and by what authority he's doing the things he's doing. And John responds to them and he says to them, you know, um, they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, no, are you the prophet? No, I'm just a voice. A voice of one crying, make way the straight path for the Lord. Here he comes. Messiah is on his way. And as I was looking at that and I was thinking about it, do you realize John knew all those guys? See, don't forget, John was born to a Levitical priest. He grew up with all the Pharisees and the scribes. They were kids together played in the same fields, went to the same studies, did the same things. But here's John in the wilderness. It's John that they all grew up with. And they're like, John, what are you doing out here in camel skin and and eating locusts? And he says, man, I'm, I'm making a straight path for the Lord. But even then, John looked to them and said, brood of vipers, who warned you to escape the coming judgment? What are you doing here? Think about the people that were coming to that to John for repentance. Listen, the people who came to John for repentance knew they needed forgiveness. The people who came to Jesus looking for forgiveness or repentance understood that there was something in their life they needed to repent of. They understood that there was something amiss, something's wrong in them. But the Pharisees, they never saw it. So they never acknowledged the authority of John. So look what their answer is. So they reason among themselves. Anytime they reason among themselves, this is what it means. They are not interested in the truth. They are interested in what they can lead Jesus into. 
They're not answering a question, are they? They're not trying to say, well, it was from heaven or, well, it was from, from men. They're afraid to answer, so they, they say, well, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to ask us, why didn't we believe him? Well, that is the key, right? Why didn't you believe him? If what he said is true, why didn't you believe him? And then, he, then they say, if we say it's from men, the people are going to be mad at us because everyone counts John a prophet. So everyone knew that John's authority came from heaven. But the Pharisees don't want to admit it because they don't want to change. Because they're a tree full of leaves, like a cloud promising rain but never delivering. Just empty. They're just empty. So they look to Jesus and they do what my kids do when I ask them, who broke the lamp? I don't know. Hate those words. I don't know. Just the other day, I found myself using them. <laughs> Kathy cleaned up the kitchen, and she comes in, and she looks at the kitchen and thinks, oh, the kitchen is a... Who was in here making something and didn't clean up? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's like a badge of guilt. I did it. I did it. It was me. I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It was so good. But she got this runny peanut butter. You guys ever had that runny peanut butter? I can pour it out the jar. It saves me a little time in making the sandwich. I just pour it out. And then I, I don't use a knife. I like to use a spoon on the jelly so you get enough. But it spilt a little. And I was in a hurry to go do something else, so I thought, well, Kathy cleaned it up once. Surely she won't mind doing it again. So now in front of everyone, I confess. <laughs> it was me. <clears throat> but since what they say, they say, well, I don't know. I don't know. You don't know what happened. So then Jesus responds to them. Now listen, I don't want you to lose the response. Jesus says to them, well, neither will I tell you. But then he's going to tell them two parables. And these two parables are going to speak to the deeper issue in their life. The two parables. First parable is about repentance, which is what they need, right? And the second parable is about rejection, what is what they're doing. So Jesus, though he doesn't answer the question in regard to authority, listen, Scripture does. Scripture does. The word for authority in Greek is exousia. Exousia is sometimes translated power, but it always means authority, power in the sense of authority. Listen, in John 1.12, Scripture says, To as many as received him, to them gave he the power, authority, to become the sons of God, to as many as believed on his name. Scripture says in John 5, 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Speaking about God giving Jesus authority. John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, Jesus said, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, exousia, authority, and I have power to raise it up again. Authority. And the scripture lays out for us, this command, he says, I received from my father. It's not that Jesus never told him where his authority comes from. He says, I have authority from God. God gave me authority. And here's how you're going to know I have authority. 
You're going to kill me on the cross and three days later I'm going to rise again and shortly we're going to celebrate that day. We're going to celebrate that day because it happened. Because the tomb is empty. Because he has that authority. And that authority is from God. Well, let's look at this parable. Let's look at this first parable. The parable, Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first son and said, son, go work in my vineyard today. And his son answered and said, no, I don't want to. I'm sick of you telling me what to do. I'm tired of doing stuff for you. Why can't you take out your own trash? Wait a minute. That's something that happens in my house. <clears throat> Why? Why can't you? So the, so the father and the son, the, the story, the father and son has altercation. And the son, maybe the son just stomps out of the house at that point. But the scripture says later on, he repents and went to the field to work. Father went to the second son. Son, will you go work in my vineyard? The second son said, with nice, flattering words, Oh, Dad, I just love to help you. I really enjoy the opportunity to be in the vineyard and pick grapes. And so I'm excited to do it. Thank you, Father, for counting me worthy to be able to work in your vineyard. And he walked out and didn't do it. Jesus, when he says this to the, to the Pharisees, he says, which one did the will of the Father? The one who had the nice, pretty attitude on the outside, full of leaves, but no fruit? Or the one who was a little raunchier, and kind of fiery and, and spewing all this stuff in the beginning, but then later realized, man, that was wrong, repents and went and did it. And you know the Pharisees are sitting there saying, I don't want to tell you. Because somehow this is going to be bad for me. You know that they're thinking that. But they're trapped. They have to answer which one did the will of the Father. So they said the first one. Look at Jesus' response. I love it. I love what Jesus says to them. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Whoa! That was not politically correct. Wasn't even nice. You see, the phrase tax collector was like saying traitors, because the tax collector, every tax collector was a traitor. And the word for harlot there, the word for prostitute, is the word sinners. Well, you know, typically in your Bible, when you see that word sinners used in that way, it's always talking about people of the street. People who grew up in the street, streetwise people, prostitutes, people ripping people off, people doing, just had to live on the street. Grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Who came to John's baptism? Tax collectors and harlots. See, Jesus said they understand the need for repentance. But you talk with that flowery speech like the second son. And you say you're going to go do, and you're going to do the will of the Father, and you say that you're all about Him, and you have all this outward religion, but in your heart, there's no repentance. So there is no relationship. So He lays it out for Him. Scripture lays out for us in our attitudes, when we consider our attitudes, we should not condemn 
people for the things we're guilty of. We're guilty of it all. You remember what Jesus said, right? It's not just toward men, by the way. You've heard it said of old, not to commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman and lust after her in her heart, you've committed adultery already. You've heard it said in days of old, you shall not commit murder. But I say, if you hate your brother, you committed murder in your heart already. Hey, we're all guilty. That's the point. And if we are sitting down right now thinking, I hope that the guy sitting next to me is listening to this because looking at him, he's needs something. <laughs> the Word of God is not a flashlight. The Word of God is a mirror. It shows you, you, not somebody else. What's happening in my heart? What's going on in me? Man, I, I want to I be... the. You know, I had somebody give a great... Uh, 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 I don't even know. I just forgot how to speak English. A who? Nope. Thanks for trying to help. That's not it. I'd love to let you in my head, but it's all scrambled right now. They gave me a great compliment. I guess somewhere out someplace, somebody was talking about that church, Calvary Chapel Buell. And they said, they just let anybody in there. Man, I was about as stoked as I could get when I heard that. That's right. Yeah, it's a house for sinners. It's what it's supposed to be. People who need a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just people who think they're good. And they come to church to sit around with other people who think they're good and tell each other how good they are. That's what was going wrong in here. If we ever change where just any old body can't come to church... Get me out of here. Bring somebody in who's going to do what they're supposed to do. That is make sure them doors are open for anybody. Whosoever will come. All who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Man, Jesus put out the call to whosoever. That's what we want to be about. Well, this is the Pharisees. You know, when they looked at Jesus and, and he was there with Simon the Pharisee. He's laying on the ground, his head toward the table, his feet back away. And this woman is weeping and crying over him and her tears hit his dirty feet. So she begins to wipe his feet off with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee looking at this thinks, man, there's no way Jesus is a holy guy. Because if he was holy, he would know what kind of woman that is that's touching him. And he would say, get away from me. And Jesus looked at him. He just thought it. Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, what do you think? If two guys owed a great debt and both were forgiven, which one would love more? Simon said, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And he says, man, you're right. You're right. When I came into your house, you didn't offer me a basin to wash my feet. You didn't welcome me. But this woman who's been forgiven much, she hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears or wiping it with her hair. She loves much because she's forgiven much. Your problem, Simon, is you think you're okay. 
And you don't know that you need forgiveness too. It's the same thing Jesus is laying out in this story, man, this, this parable that he lays out. But he's not just finished with them there. Look at verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, when you saw people's lives changing, you didn't repent. When the brother who said all those nice things, he must have passed by the field and looked and seen the brother with the bad attitude working in the field. And thinking, oh gosh, my brother repented and he's out there, but I'm not, well, I'm not going. That's the Pharisees. You saw it, but you didn't go. You didn't believe. You didn't repent. So here another parable. There's a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and in it built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Hey, according to Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. The one who owns the vineyard is God. As we look at this story and we see the things that the Lord is laying out for us here in regard to, to rejection, we see the servants, the servants being sent and being killed. Who were they? They're the prophets. You remember that guy, Stephen? Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit and he's doing all these good things for the Lord and submitting his life to him and he's not just a tree with leaves, he's got fruit. And he's out doing this thing and these guys come against him, the same guys who crucified Jesus and they're giving him a lot of grief and they're, they're putting him to the test. Listen to something he says to them. In Acts chapter 7 verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's when he stopped being nice. He was pretty nice until then. Now he realizes they're not listening. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? The story of the vine dresser, he goes away, he gives it, rents the field to to people who are supposed to take care of it. And when the time comes for harvest, he sends his servants and they kill him. So he sends more, they kill him again. So then he says, I know they'll respect my son. So he sent his son. And they got together and they reasoned among themselves. And they said, we kill the son, we can, we can take the vineyard for ourselves. See, it's a story of rejection. It's a story of rejecting the Messiah, the one that Jesus came to be. The one that the Father sent. It's a story about rejecting what he is offering. The son is Jesus. Listen, Mark 12, 6 says... Therefore, still having one son, his most beloved, he sent them to them thinking they'll respect my son. So they take his son outside of the vineyard and they kill him. So Jesus asks them this question. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? He asked the Pharisees, the guys who are are, are hearing the story, what's going to happen? And they speak forth their own judgment. 
They speak forth their own judgment. They say to him, He will destroy the wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. You see the picture of the fig tree all the way through. Look good on the outside, but no fruit. A promise of fruit, but it's not there. So they're going to give it to someone who will promise fruit, who will deliver fruit. Jesus is saying to them, you're rejecting the Son. What do you think God's going to do about it? Then He's going to reject us and give it to another. It's interesting because then Jesus answers and says to them, you're right. Jesus said to them, have you never read the Scriptures? Now, remember who He's talking to? These are the guys who teach the Scriptures. I love it when Jesus says things like this. Do you read the Bible you teach? Do you read it? Have you, have you paid attention? Listen, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. First thing he does is he points to a specific prophecy. Specific prophecy in Psalm 118. And he said, see? Rejection. You're rejecting the stone, which will become the chief of the corner. It's interesting, when, when we went to Israel a few years ago, we went through a biblical resource garden. I always struggled with the idea of, of the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone all about? In the biblical resource garden, this guy pointed to the keystone in an arch, and he said he thinks that's what the cornerstone is. I, I think that's kind of cool, but I can't find anything to support that idea. The most common understanding is a cornerstone was a big square, not a rectangle. And the big square was set on the first and a floor ready to set everything else off of that. Everything else came off of that chief of the corner, that big square stone. The scripture says in this specific prophecy, it's the Lord's doing. They're rejecting the stone, the rock, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He is the rock. He is the rock. So first Jesus points to a specific prophecy. Then he predicts their judgment. What's their judgment? Look look what this says in the next phrase. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation doing what? Bearing fruit. Not just leaves. Not just leaves. It'll be taken from you and given to another nation. A light has dawned unto the Gentiles. Israel's rejection has opened that door. Romans chapter 9, 25 and 26 says, And he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. And I will call her my beloved who was not beloved. And it will come to, pa- come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. To as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to be called Sons of God. It's passing from one to the other. The third thing that he does is he proclaims the importance of the stone. Man, that stone matters, guys. It's, a, it's an important thing. It's an important thing. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, listen to this. In Acts chapter 4, it says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone that was rejected by the builders, 
which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Here the Pharisees are. They're asking Jesus about his authority. He tells them two stories. One about repentance, which is the way to find relationship. The other about rejection, which is the way to get out of relationship. He lays it out for them, and then he tells them this story about the stone which the builders have rejected in roughly four days they're going to kill him they're going to be pretty sure that the the whole deal's done three days later they're going to hear that he rose from the dead so they're going to bribe the soldiers so they'll tell lies a few days after that (coughs) the power of the holy spirit is going to be poured out on the disciples and peter's going to begin preaching that guy who denied him three times around the fire and 3,000 people are going to get saved. So they're going to go and they're going to grab Peter and John and they're going to beat them. And they're going to say, don't preach in the name of Jesus again. And they're going to say, by what authority are you doing these things? And they say, by the authority of the stone that you rejected. And they go, oh, remember that. I remember when Jesus said that. I remember when he laid those things out for him. Those Sanhedrin that persecuted the church, the same guys. It's not a new group. Seeing the things that Jesus did. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also had been appointed. The same guys who are supposed to get it, they don't. They're rejecting him. Jesus tells them the authority by which it comes, and then he lays out for them, here's the path you've chosen, the path of rejection. Here's where this path lays. In verse 45, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they were afraid, for the multitude took him for a prophet. They can't get him yet. Why? Well, it's it's the 11th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan, the the lamb was presented to the priest and examined. At the end of the time of examination, it would be slain. But it's not slain until the 14th of Nisan. That's Passover. Four days. Three days now. Three days to the cross. Three days to the cross. Jesus still reached out to them and told them the way of salvation is the way of repentance. As we close out this morning, I just encourage you, examine yourself. Are you the fig tree? Or are you in the group called tax collectors and harlots? The ones who repent. And receive salvation. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.